We want to welcome our audience to the Smith Weekly Uranium Summit. The journey continues. The special event is presented to you by Smith Weekly Research and features two key uranium industry figures who have graciously given us their time today at no charge to us. These two gentlemen are at the top tier of experience and wisdom this sector has to offer, being they have been there, done that, and they did it well. I am the event host, Andrew Weekly, founder and CEO of Smith Weekly Research. And once again, welcome to the Uranium Summit. The journey continues. We urge the audience to allocate attention to the on-screen notes here, as well as the event notes under the screen viewer for important notices and details about this event. Our guest today, Mr. Dustin Garo of Nuclear Fuel Associates, a consultancy on all things nuclear fuel, from sales to the fuel cycle to nuclear utility relations. During his career, Dustin has successfully sold billions of dollars worth of uranium concentrate to nuclear power utilities worldwide. More on Mr. Garo's experience can be found on the upcoming screens. And we have Mr. John Borjoff of Deep Yellow, a unique uranium business set up for the next cycle in uranium led by John, and a experienced team having explored, advanced, financed, built, commissioned, and operated the only two notable conventional mines brought online within the confines of the last uranium cycle that took place during the first decade of this century. More on Mr. Borjoff's experience can be found on the upcoming screens. We want to start off by having Mr. Garo give us a market update and highlight for us the key areas of the market he sees as important going forward. Dustin, it's great to have you back and take it away. Uh, thank you very much, Andrew, and uh, good morning from uh, Steamboat Springs to both yourself and John. Um, yeah, let me just give you a quick uh, quick update on kind of what uh, see going on in the market. I think uh, the audience is probably aware that for uh, a fairly extended period of time, the uh, 232 petition process here in the United States, which was a, a request from a couple of the smaller uh, U.S. producers, uh, of which there aren't a whole lot left. Uh, this year, U.S. production will be well below a million pounds. Um, they petitioned the Department of Commerce to uh, examine the national security aspects of uranium imports into the United States. Now, this really had two facets. One is uh, utility fuel side. Um, and, and again, they were looking at the countries such as Russia, China, Kazakhstan, um, but also uh, the Department of Defense. Uh, just as a, as a bit of background, uh, when the Department of Defense needs uranium, it has to be totally acquired, shall we say, uh, from domestic sources. In other words, it has to be mined in the United States, uh, converted, enriched, and processed for the uh, Department of Defense to utilize that material. Now, the, the current forecasts are that they don't need uranium uh, probably until deep into the 2020s, but uh, then you have to beg the question of will there be a domestic industry available in order to meet any of their needs? Anyway, the Department of Commerce accepted that uh, petition. They conducted their 270-day statutory uh, investigation 
and then uh, presented a, a recommendation to the White House. The next step in the process is the um, president has a 90-day period to review any recommendations and then make a, make a decision on what uh, the administration might want to do. Uh, that really came up uh, mid-July, and uh, to a little bit of a surprise, I think, to some, um, President Trump made the decision, and the way it was worded was, at this time, I do not concur with the Department of Commerce recommendation, which I believe had to do with some requirements on the utilities to purchase newly produced U.S. Uh, uranium. But he did go on to say that he uh, uh, saw that there were national security issues around the entire fuel cycle. So what he did was to appoint a, I think it's a 13 uh, department or agency uh, nuclear fuel working group headed by Mr. Bolton, the head of uh, national security. And they were to examine this issue of national security as it relates to the U.S nuclear fuel cycle. I think there were some people that thought they were going to look at the global cycle, uh, but that's not the case. So we're into the 90-day the period that the president uh, allocated to the uh, working group, and that will be up on the 10th of October. Uh, to my knowledge, the group is not formally met yet, but there's been quite a bit of work going on kind of directly from some of the agencies and uh, participants in the domestic uranium fuel cycle. And I think there's been some uh, discussions amongst the domestic fuel cycle participants on what would be a decent remedy. Now, I don't know what the, what the parameters of that might be, uh, but I think there's uh, optimism because of the wording from the president that there, as long as there's a reasonable program advanced or, you know, put forth for his uh, approval, something will happen. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I'm of the opinion it will probably be kind of utility neutral. I know one of the concerns that the utilities had expressed was that if they had to buy, you know, at one point it was 25% uh, of their future requirements from domestic producers, they could face a very large price uh, penalty in their view versus buying that material in the global market. So I think, uh, you know, the president was probably certainly made aware of that. Um, and so it's one of the factors uh, in this whole uh, evaluation. So in my opinion, I think if the utilities are required to participate, uh, it could be accompanied by tax credits, which offset any uh, payments they have to make uh, over and above what they would have paid for a, uh, the material under you know, a global market price. And uh, it's more likely though the federal government through the Department of Energy or uh, through the Department of Defense may step in. They could do uh, advanced contracting. I mean, they could commit today to start uh, stockpiling material that they might need down the road. Uh, under the, I think it's a Defense Procurement Act, they can give loan guarantees to industries that uh, are declared necessary for national security. But again, I think it will be something that um, all parties can agree to. So we, I think we're moving away from the adversarial 
uh, situation that grew up under the 232, certainly between the U.S. Uh, consuming utilities and the uranium producers. Now, what was the outcome, though, for the market on 232? Uh, basically, uh, the market went into a period of, uh, of hiatus. The U.S. utilities, which tend to be one of the larger uh, components of the spot market, I think they bought about 35%. Well, all the utilities bought about 35% out of spot last year. But the U.S. utilities pretty much stepped back and said, hey, I will wait until the outcome of this because I don't know really how I should go about my nuclear fuel procurement with the uncertainties. Um, the other thing was term contracting, which again, I think you're, you're well aware that the industry relies on for developing and, and operating their, particularly the uranium uh, production facilities. Uh, the U.S. utilities have very large unfilled uranium requirements starting around 2021, 2022. And they had begun to look at the term market just before the 232 petition was filed. Uh, they pretty much stepped back because once again, they said, this injects a high level of uncertainty into the market. I don't know if I'm going to be required to buy U.S. newly produced uranium so there was, again, a, 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 a hiatus in the term market. So we saw a period after, you know, 2018, spot market volumes were very uh, significant, almost 90 million pounds against a historic average of around 50. Now, part of that was driven by uh, the new fund Yellow Cake, buying uh, almost 9 million pounds, UPC bought, a number of financial entities began to uh, re-enter the market to take a uranium position. I've seen estimates of eight to 10 million pounds there. So last year was kind of an abnormally high uh, volume in the spot market. Um, this year, it's dropped off pretty noticeably. Uh, through the month of July, I think the volume was down at least 15%. Uh, it was below 30 million. Um, for that first half of the year. 2018, most of the activity occurred in the second half of the year. So the market uh, really quieted down. The price that had gone up to close to 29 or, or actually over uh, 29.10 um, really dropped off and, and the big drop was in March. And so we've been kind of around that $25, you know, it'd been a little lower, uh, you know, 24.50, 24 lower 24s, a little bit higher. But, you know, really over the last, I think, two or three months, we've been stuck around that $25 level. And, and there's been some activity, as I said, but it's more traders kind of coming in. Um, Cameco with their purchase program, now that they've got uh, MacArthur River on care and maintenance, uh, they were projected to be buying a large volume kind of throughout the year, but seemingly they kind of backed off uh, and they were participating in the discussions and inputs on the 232. So that kind of uh, also led to the market uh, slowdown. Now, what we saw after the Trump decision in July of uh, that he wouldn't impose limitations, but set up the working group, I think the uncertainty is still in the market, it's not as great. 
because I think the, the participants feel that we won't end up with a bifurcated, you know, U.S. price versus global price, things like that. But they're still being very cautious. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh, the utilities have, have purchased a bit in the spot market. Um, Cameco has said their latest uh, quarterly call that they will be uh, much more active in the market. In fact, they've increased the volume that they want to acquire by a couple million pounds. And uh, the other thing I've heard is that some of the financial buyers are starting to re-enter the market and begun to pick up some small volumes. Um, that on top, I think the utilities will re-engage the market. And so we should see a pretty active, um, let's say last quarter, uh, that could basically go into early 2020. But I think we'll see the, the spot market pick up on volume. And I'm keep continually being told that there's not a lot of material out there. Uh, in other words, it, it, the market obviously is in fairly decent balance, but at a price that's really uh, unsustainable. You know, Cameco continues to say, yeah, the, the market looks like it's going to get better, but it's got to get significantly better. But the other thing is a term market. We do have a U.S. utility has entered the term market looking for material starting in 2021. Not a lot. It's, you know, 200 to 300,000 pounds a year. But uh, also quietly, I'm hearing that the U.S. utilities are beginning to approach uh, the uranium suppliers to just get a feel of what do they have kind of out in that 21 and beyond time frame, uh, what might they be looking for uh, in commercial terms. So I think uh, after the uh, October 10th decision, uh, we will see, uh, you know, a real uptick in the term market. So again, you know, what does that mean for the, the price level? I think we may have seen the bottom for this cycle. And then the question is how quickly does it start to increase? You know, do we have, you know, for example, as you're well aware, I'm chief commercial officer for Yellow Cake and it still has uh, more than half of its option with Kaz Adam Prom uh, for this year. You know, I think we use 35 million of the, the 100 million. Um, so, you know, will they step back in? Certainly could if the, the, the price indicators, the, the NAV and the, the share price are in the right position. So, you know, some of these other uh, proposed trading companies, Uranium Trading Corp out in Southern California, uh, they may step in. So again, I think we'll see the volume pick up pretty noticeably, but again, the 232 process and now the follow-on working group pretty much put a, let's say, put an anchor on the market as such. Now, as been observed by uh, some of the price reporters like UX, they see this as kind of a, a coiling of the spring. In other words, the demand is, is there, but it just wasn't expressed in the market yet. So, so I think even the, the long-time market observers are beginning to see it. And the other thing that I think is important is both trade tech and UX are uh, talking more and more about production. Uh, I think UX ran an editorial recently on the changing nature of uranium production, how costs are going to have a much bigger effect on the price as we go forward, uh, because, and we may get into it later, 
uh, there's not a lot of options for the uh, the utilities. And I think a big part of it is like Rio Tinto. Effectively, the Ranger mine will be done by 2021, which is not far off, and then selling their share of Rossing to China National Uranium basically puts one of the old time big uh, mining companies out of this industry uh, permanently. They see, well, I don't think they show much interest in uranium long term. So that list of future supply sources is getting much shorter. And, you know, the utilities want to diversify their supply and, and that's going to become more difficult for them. So I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to cover on the market, Andrew. That was kind of a long-winded summary. But yeah, I think we're now starting to move into uh, the next phase of the market, finally. Well, Dustin, I appreciate the extensive update on that. And, and we'll have some more here in a little bit that, that uh, we'll, we'll bring in some comments and questions based on what you said here. Um, John, uh, what events out there do you find interesting and what changes are, your, are you seeing on your end? Well, basically, I mean, I, I look at this thing and every time um, you're sort of asked to look forward, it's, you know, you might as well be listening in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, and we're in the same, we're in the same position. So with all the thousands of pages that have been written, with all of the overhyped central positioning of section 232, which, which is just a, a, a matter which is so inconsequential to the whole supply demand dynamic. And that's lost in this narrative because the US, you know, is still got this sort of thinking that it is a it dominates in the nuclear business and it is only 25% of global demand and going to get less and less in that side and uh, and so you've got to you've got to be thinking in terms of the supply demand of the rest even though even though the US is a is the biggest singular market uh, it is it is disillusioned it is bifurcated by you know those those plants it's got in the regulated market <coughs> and the unregulated market so I, I think you know the the distraction of, of, of 232 is unfortunate. Uh, I think the, the, the outcome has been clearly uh, uh, shown by markets discounting those, those companies by almost 50% uh, in value because, and they don't have much hope in terms of what the review will do. Um, and who knows where the review is, uh, that uh, everybody's trying to do a salvage operation on that, all, all the juniors and you know they're threatening to uh, to uh, uh, cut staff from three to two and um, and all of this sort of business. So the bottom side for me is um, the supply demand issue is not looked at in terms of where people should look at it. It's not the U.S. Uh, the U.S. no matter what happens will be minor players and will project production side. I, I think that, you know, the 25%, as Dustin said, quota that uh, the, the, the producers were seeking is, is, is done and dusted. It's gone. And, uh, and, and even that was only 3 to 4% of the total global production. 
and, and if there is some sort of uh, other uh, um, uh, sort of subsidy, it's got to be looked at in terms of, you know, um, the US worries very much with whether other producers offshore uh, are subsidized or not. So you've got to, you, you, it's got to be a, a, as level of playing field as, as possible. Um, the demand is 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 there, and 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 even look, even if uranium goes from seventeen to twenty nine in in the year, what does it mean? I mean, it's so underwater. It's 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 just dealing in the in the ludicrous in terms of a sustainable industry, and uh, and I and I just wonder when it does break, and I think it must. You know, it'll probably break the thirty dollar barrier, but it'll be in this twilight zone. Of um, of no, you know, it's not even. It's not going to make an industry. It's not going to break an industry, and it's uh, and it'll need a, a, a another catalyst to to really drive uh, prices to where to where they should should be. Um, during the whole year, all sorts of manner of things have been tried uh, and uh, extended shutdowns, um, buying off. Uh, you know, buying off this sort of uh, off a market that they can't seem to uh, get to the to the bottom of, and and price uh, uh, certainly uh, is not reacting to it. Be rest assured, if the utilities smelt even had a slightest fear of some shortage, they'd be reacting to it. But they're not. Their big their big fault is that they they argued the section two three two case wrongly. They think they have got some sort of influence on the uranium price, which they have not. Yes, the producers are, 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 um, are price takers, but also the uh, consumers will be price takers because the market dynamic is an independent situation. It's not doesn't belong to the utilities and it doesn't belong to the to the to the producer. So when 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 uh, that signal comes out that there are, you know, whatever the issues are, which I have my own opinions uh, about supply. Um, the, uh, uh, the 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 consumers will have to buy what it is, and they think because they uh, spoilt the section two three two petitioners' objectives that they'll somehow keep the prices to these levels. Well, that's that's the biggest false presumption that you could imagine because it'll have nothing to do with uh, containing uranium price. It was so pathetically small the U.S. contribution in terms of what the global supply demand is. So I'm interested as well what this uh, big group can do and where it will do and what its focus will be and what sort of uh, little tricks it'll have in terms of. Uh, accommodating some producers which are getting even more despondent in the US and it's not too hot even for the other uh, uh, producers or potential producers the rest of the world. So I see that it's more of the same. Um, I, 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 um, as I say it, it suits me. Um, uh, I think that inevitably uh, the reality of the whole uh, situation will will show itself and and then you'll get a, a true Sort of a calibrate, recalibration of the of the supply industry and affected by uh, and you know supported by good prices. But there is a zone there where you know it'll be sitting in that thirty to forty. It will be no no account for anybody, and people will be forced to 
play in that in that zone and uh, and become even more vulnerable. That's all I have. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate the uh, the information and your thoughts on it. I want to go to the screen here and talk a little bit more about the utilities and what they need. Uh, Dustin, uh, source of supply. You know, you mentioned Yellow Cake. You mentioned some of these uh, trading outfits, et cetera. Do you see the utilities uh, potentially approaching these outfits uh, like a yellow cake that has inventory and trying to find potentially a, a supply deal? And is yellow cake actively going after a supply deal with the utilities at this point? Can you kind of talk about the needs from a producer and an intermediary point of view? And then also the, uh, the quantity and then further how that goes into the trust and the ability to deliver. Sure, happy to uh, to comment on that. And uh, just so the audience is aware, I, I do work for Energy Fuels here in the United States. I'm also under contract to Bannerman with their proposed project in Namibia. So it's a you know large uh, source potentially kind of out in the future, um, as well as uh, working with Yellow Cake. But you know, kind of back on the the that are now called the sequesterers of uranium, which really started with Uranium Participation Corporation in Canada, which I think they're now close to holding about 15 to 16 million pounds. Um, and, and I know as John is, is well aware that that's been around for quite a while. And their ultimate uh, outcome, they've always said, is that they would be purchased by a, a utility that needs that uranium. In other words, if the the, uh, the market got into such a state where, you know, a, a large utility saw that risk, as John points out, certainly they could come in and, and quote, take out one of these uh, sequesterers. Now, that is obviously in this market is highly unlikely. And I can tell you that Yellow Cake has been asked the same question. In other, other words, what's the, the end game? Um, the company's not actively looking for someone to come and buy them out at this point, because we do see quite a bit of upside still in the value there. Um, but one thing that the, the, the sector of the market that's uh, injected again, another bit of uncertainty, are the, uh, what are dubbed the financial buyers. So these are investment firms uh, and they're spread all over the, I mean, Brazil, Australia, North America, Europe, um, that did come into the market last year. They'd been a, fa a factor in the past, kind of 04, 05. Uh, then they showed up again before Fukushima and all of that. But but that I think has been now kind of branded the the sector that's a wild card. In other words, uh, uh, you know, they came in last year, bought the estimated eight to ten million pounds, uh, probably on the way up to 29. So some of the pounds were. 24, 25, whatever. Uh, when the market uh, started to cool off, there's uh, some indications that they did sell some of that material. And so, and, and Cameco's clearly uh, identified this group as the ones that are, are kind of unpredictable. And, and I'm asked uh, regularly, well, at what price will they sell? You know, how do we like model them in? And my view is they've all got their own individual business strategy. So in other words, if you buy at uh, 25 and the price gets to 30, do you say, hey, 
that's a nice return and I'll go ahead and sell my holdings. Uh, or do they say, hey, the price is moving up, I'm gonna hold, but, I, but they're not long-term holders of, of uranium. So they're not sequesterers and clearly they're not consumers. So they see this as a pure commodity price play. And so that will be an interesting point. As John said, when the price gets to 30 to 40, is that a range where you know, we start to see this material come back in the market? Do we start to see potential restarts? Now, no one necessarily sees that. Um, and, and I think Cameco's indicated that they'll, they'll hold to a, a price that's above, say, that 40. But I've heard rumors of 45 to 50, whatever. But, uh, you know, and I think as John hits the nail on the head, if the price kind of stalls in that pick 35 as a middle of the range, at some point, the, you know, do the Kazakhs say, well, we can make money at 35. You know, we'll, we'll restart or expand some of our ISR production. Um, that's when it's going to be an interesting zone to be in. But then you go to the utilities and you say, well, what are they really looking for? And, you know, for all of the, the midterm carry trade uh, transactions that have been done, I think they still see that as kind of a stopgap. In other words, they can dilute down. Uh, you know, the U.S. utilities last year paid on average just under $40 for their uh, delivered uranium. And, and most of it, again, was they took 40 million pounds in and bought six in the spot. So vastly influenced by long-term contract deliveries. And so they've diluted down a bit using carry trade. I understand the, the carry trade market, which you know we know is the Tochu Traxxas, uh, Macquarie Bank has become a big player there. They apparently are approaching the utilities now saying, hey, you can trust us. You know, you can rely on us to be, you know, your long-term supply source. I think the utilities don't see it that way. I think they now see that as a, a part of their mix, but they have to start to get serious about more traditional long-term contracting, which, you know, the, the factors uh, that you've uh, put on the slide here, it's, you know, security of supply. I mean, one of the, the, you know, premier utilities here is Duke, and they've got 11 reactors consuming 5 million pounds a year. Now it's all in regulated markets, so they don't have to deal with uh, competition from natural gas. But, you know, they've said, hey, we really need to make sure that we've got fuel for these units. I mean, yeah, we can, you know, monkey around with, you know, carry trade and stuff like that but it's not gonna be their primary source. And then they have to start looking again at reliability of supply. I mean, there are some big US utilities, for example, that have never signed a contract uh, either with uh, Russia or any of the uh, Central Asian producers because they don't see the, they question their reliability. Now, of course, a lot of the utilities have, have done that, but you know, they wanna make, they have to make sure that material is available. I mean, that's that's part of the, that, that's one of the end game issues. So, but then they like to diversify. So they they wanna have a basket or a portfolio 
of various producers. I mean, most of them are going to sign a Cameco contract. Uh, you know, they may buy from Orano. They don't sell just natural U308. They sell the more advanced products. Um, so that's kind of the tricky part because then, depending on how you evaluate that risk profile of future delivery, you probably want to put, uh, you know, uh, producers that are planning to produce. You know, say, for example, uh, I know that Berkeley got a contract with the U.S. utility for production out of Salamanca, which looks like it's either going to be noticeably delayed or not ever come into production. So all of that he's, has to be kind of put together. Then you develop your inventory strategy. In other words, if I've got a, a bit of a riskier mix, I'm going to have to carry more pounds in inventory, which raises your costs. So, you know, they do have a bit of a complex calculus. And as I said, I think it's going to get more difficult just because there aren't that many producers available. So, and BHP from their marketing, they tend to also uh, kind of have a bias toward the spot. So I'm assuming of there about 8 million pounds a year, only about half of it is put into term contracts. So, you know, I think that's kind of, you know, some of the uh, challenges that the utilities face. And, you know, as John correctly again pointed out, they don't see a shortage or they would be a bit more active. But I think it's kind of a more cautious, let's look at the market, what should we be doing? And I know we may uh, touch on the other parts of the fuel cycle, enrichment and conversion uh, in another question. But I think the, the situation in conversion has really gotten their attention. But, uh, you know, so in general, that's kind of, I guess, an overview of what I'm seeing the utilities doing. Uh, some of the Eastern European utilities have been out buying uh, term uh, enriched uranium product. I think that's a, an area where, for example, Urenco and certainly the Russians are very active. Uh, so they're buying more advanced forms of fuel, but it's the smaller, smaller uh, utilities that have been doing that. So in general, I think those are the, the, the factors that the utilities are, they took, I guess, again, a breather during the 232 uh, I'm not sure they used it to to do all their due diligence, but I think we'll start to see them more and more um, in the market. And once it's and John, I know is well aware. Once the the bigger utilities start to contract, then the smaller guys fall in line. The the logic being, well, they must know more about the market than I do, so I better get out there. And the other thing, and John, you you'll appreciate this. I took a look at the on-market versus off-market volumes. Now, what does that mean? You know, on-market is a utility puts out a formal request, like Duke. They have a formal request. Here are the years. Here's the volumes. Here's what our wish list is. Um, only about 30% of the contracts uh, for term delivery since 2001 have been on-market. So in other words, 70% have been done with just direct negotiations. So that does get into some of the, the newer producers. Um, I think they're, they're having to realize that you've got to be out there meeting with the utilities, 
and letting them know what you think you have, what's the time frame, what are your price uh, needs, which are certainly well above $32, which is the published term price. And, and so it worked kind of on both sides. The utilities have to you know, make sure they pulse and do due diligence on the market if they're not gonna put out a formal request. And then on the producer side, they've gotta be in touch with uh, the utilities on what their plans are. Um, and you kind of, you know, that's where the, there's a meeting of the minds at some point. Uh, and, and that's where the contracts come out. So again, I think that's kind of where we are. This is gonna be a part of the, the next phase of the market. Everybody focuses on spot. It's become the, the touchstone, but it's really gonna be those discussions and contracts in the term market. And those meetings haven't taken place. And John, you'll appreciate this. I had one of the big utilities say, you know, the producers don't really come to see us as much as they used to. Well, they can't afford to. They've all cut back staff, including Cameco and, you know, that, that quarterly meeting we used to have in the utility offices. Now it's maybe semi-annual or annual. So they, they don't have as much uh, contact you know, with the producers, but the producers don't have a lot of extra budget available to send their marketers around, uh, you know, to talk to the utilities. So in any way, you know, there's a lot of quote data, you know, uh, production cost studies. And, you know, as John said, thousands of pages are put out, but that really doesn't give you the whole story, you know? So, so anyway, I think we're, you know, like I said, we're entering a very interesting phase of the market and we'll, we'll see how it comes out. John, I want to ask you for your comments real quick and also including kind of with this uh, a question for you, John, in, in which way will China secure future uranium supply and in the Middle East, including India? How will these nations go about securing their supply and with who? I'll, I'll answer a little bit, um, fill in a little bit what uh, Dustin was saying and just my opinion on warehousing uh, uranium companies and what what use they are in the in the sort of fueling system and the financiers. Uh, these are what I commonly call castrated bulls. They have no production capacity, reproduction capacity whatsoever. So what they do is what they've accumulated is only what they can sell, and they will not. Uh, uh, apart from even uh, even the one with yellow cake that's made a, a it's, it appears to be a contract uh, for an option for product, but it's only if uh, Kazakh and Prom wishes to to give that product. So if there's high prices, none of that'll dry up straight away because it'll go straight from primary producer to the end user. Uh, financiers is sitting there uh, in their all their little clever mathematical. Uh, sort of uh, algorithms and models and uh, looking at you know four uh, percent profit on the on the coupon is something to to write home about. Um, there's no producer, new producer, apart from these young pups that are going to make some mines that'll ever ever do a term contract with these guys. There's no need. There's no need for uh, for producers to do uh, uh, supply deals. Uh, to financiers, and then that financier becomes the one that does term. And even when he does term, he's vulnerable because 
he's he's caught in the middle um, that that he can't control, he can't hedge, and all of these sort of things. So I see a short lifespan for these people. Um, it was different when the US was a big market, uh, and I just see them that they will uh, cop out. Um, Newcomb was a was a was a company that. Uh, uh, that had sort of warehousing, but it also had delivery every year of Russian down blended material. So they could replenish their product and then they could two term contracts. So none of these financiers or, or, or warehousing or uh, the uh, will ever uh, enter into term contracts. Uh, they can't, they can't afford to. And the amount of volumes that are needed to supply a, a nuclear, global nuclear fleet is so enormous that these this is just peripheral, right on the edges type uh, uh, pounds. In the end, it will be producer to the uh, to the utility and uh, term contract. Um, the uh, some of the spot will be picked up by the by the sort of uh, uh, the traders on the side and doing bit for this and picking up a bit on, on the uh, you know in there and, and filling in. So the and nobody's going to make a decision to start up a, a, a bloody mine because Macquarie wants some product at the cheapest price you can get. Tell you what, they'll get nothing. And uh, and it's going to be the consumer that hurts when he's short. Uh, the financiers, not the you know the ones that that are sort of pit, trying to pick it up. They can do it now. It seems easy. It's 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 happening. And uh, but it's not a sustainable business. In terms of the Chinese and uh, and in Indians and the Middle East, they'll they'll I think taking a more traditional line, where where they they sort of can't understand this sort of financial skullduggery or mumbo jumbo stuff. They they like it that you know if they want lithium, they'll get a lithium uh, uh, mine and get equity in it and get that supplied into their battery business or if it's uranium or copper or whatever. Um, the, the, the Middle East will come into that, into that area and they will uh, probably want to have some representation in the, in the producer, in, uh, you know, have some uh, uh, involvement in, on the production side. So they've got a, they'll be a strategically, they'll be quite, quite a cornerstone in the, in the, in the nuclear programs. Um, uh, India, when and if it can get its act together, will will be along the same along the same lines. And uh, and but even China now realizes it has to uh, uh, affiliate much more with uh, with capable mining people and not their own, who are not necessarily the best miners in the world, as evidence is showing on various uh, enterprises that they've tried outside of China. So yes, that's a that's a a source it's uh, it's 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 going to be a a mine a mine to the uh producer probably not much middlemen in there uh and, and okay yeah. well dustin i i want to ask you go back just briefly dustin can you uh just talk a little bit about the fuel cycle capacity and and how utilities how that might uh, structure utility strategy for the for their increasing demand for uranium. Can you just speak briefly to the to the fuel cycle there and and how that might affect utility strategy? 
Sure, more than happy to. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time uh, beyond the uranium sector, but I certainly keep an eye on it because, as you say, it does affect how the uh, utilities uh, look at the market. So let's start all the way out at enrichment. And, and I think uh, you're probably aware the, the Fukushima accident caused a major disruption in the, the enrichment market, which is uh, basically SWU, separative work units. And, you know, at the time of Fukushima, uh, the SWU price, I just happened to look at it the other day. Um, where was it? It was like one. Uh, 25, one, no, 155, and then it dropped down to uh, $35 eventually. So we saw not only the uranium price kind of fall through the floor, but enrichment. And now what's happened there, I mean, as you know, the big enrichment suppliers are Uranco and, and uh, Orano with their centrifuge uh, plants and the Russians. The Chinese have been dabbling in the uh, swoo market a little bit, but not are, are not big players. But uh, you know the uh, Uranco is really the the big, I guess, uh, not swing supplier because they're funda a, a fundamental supplier of enrichment. But you know they made it very clear in their most recent financial uh, report they're not replacing centrifuges. They're not you know they'd. They were going to try to build another plant in the United States. That's gone by the boards. So the, the SWU side is starting to, uh, you know, the price has gone up uh, to about 45 now from that 35. So you're starting to see a little bit of uh, activity there. But in general, the, the sense is enrichment, there'll be an abundance of it for quite a while. And the uh, producers are, are, are going to have to be you know, uh, competitive, let's say, I think that market will rebalance quicker than some have uh, thought. Uh, you know, Urenko has been doing quite a bit of underfeeding, I think anywhere from six to eight million pounds equivalent uranium each year, where they basically operate their enrichment plants at a different tails assay than what they're contracted to the utilities. Uh, but what they're doing is laying that material off into the future. They're signing long-term EUP deals. Uh, so they don't have to go to a uranium producer to get the feed material. They're actually stockpiling what they're, they're getting now under the underfeeding. And, you know, they did a big deal with Korea. Uh, I think they're active in Eastern Europe doing some of these smaller EUP deals. Um, now, the U.S. utilities will do EUP deals, uh, but they still seem to be focused on the components. So, in other words, they want to do their own uranium conversion and enrichment. So, I, I don't see them, you know, embracing in a, in a big fashion uh, long-term EUP, although they could make it again. It's just like, uh, you know, part of their procurement portfolio. So, you know, if, if, it, if an EUP deal looks really good, and it's a Urenco, which is a large Western, you know, uh, very uh, significant reputation for delivery, uh, I think they could look at it. But no, I think the future is going to be the, the U308. Now, the one market that has really entered an interesting phase is conversion. Uh, you know, it's always kind of the, the small guy in the fuel cycle. 
but it's critical. You have to have the U308 converted to natural UF6 before it goes into the enrichment plants. Um, what has happened there is, uh, you know, at the time of Fukushima, the enrichment, uh, or excuse me, the conversion value was like $12 a kilogram, which is how it's uh, denominated. Um, uh, the price dropped by down to, you know, October of 17 was 450. So again, a, a significant drop in the price. And it made people like Metropolis, which is here in the United States, uh, Converdine does the marketing, uh, clearly uneconomic. But now keep in mind, I'd say a guess, more than 95% of conversion, having worked at Converdine, is delivered under long-term contracts. So, you know, the, for example, Converdine didn't start to see that drop until I think around, you know, 17, as those co contracts had, had uh, expired post Fukushima. Well, now what they did was they shut down, well, they extended a shutdown of the Metropolis plant, which produces uh, the capacity 7,000 metric tons per year. And I think total Western capacity counting Comurex and Cameco is about 35. So it was, you know, 20% of Western capability. Uh, the Russian conversion, for example, uh, Western utilities don't ship their Western uranium into Russia for conversion and then back out for enrichment in the West. So, so just looking at the Western uh, sector of the market, um, so Converdine went ahead and, and shut down Metropolis and it's now on care and maintenance. So that's happened, you know, now almost two years ago. But much like uh, what Cameco adopted, Converdine then entered the spot market and bought up, the word is virtually all excess conversion to deliver into the remaining portions of their term contracts. And so the price, which was again 450 in October of 17, uh, was reported at $19 last month. And so now there's a big focus on, well, what does this mean? Um, and the word is, even if Metropolis were to come back on, the market's not going to drop below about 15 or $16. Apparently, Orano has said if the decision is to keep Metropolis shut down or go into decommissioning, they can expand their new conversion plant, but it's $18 a kilogram under long-term contracts. So again, what the utilities are seeing is, is a crucial sector of the supply chain, which was under huge stress. And now the price is just, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it's 20 this month, um, has really uh, had a significant uplift and, you know, a main supplier has said, yeah, we plan to come back into production, but the, you know, much like Cameco says on MacArthur, you know, the, the prices have to be significantly higher. And it wouldn't surprise me because I'm not aware of, Con of Converdine out doing a lot of term marketing right now. So they're basically saying, hey, we'll wait for the market to come to us. So all of this then gets worked into the utility, uh, like I said, the calculus on, well, how do we cover off our future needs? Do we do more EUP and let uh, 
you know, uh, Urenko somehow worry about the conversion? Or should we get out there and start signing long-term conversion contracts at, you know, I think the, the long-term price or backwardation is around 15 or 16. And I hope we're not embarrassed if somehow conversion drops back down to 12 or 10, which I just don't see happening. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's hard to take those con contracts upstairs in a utility when they'll go, well, wait a minute, you know, what happened here? Didn't we know this was coming? So, so again, this is all, you know, we focus pretty much on the, on the uranium side, but they, you know, the utilities are really getting potentially squeezed, certainly on conversion and, you know, enrichment uh, is starting to strengthen. So, you know, there's a lot of question marks, a lot of boxes to tick, as they say. Right, and the uh, the price of SWU and conversion is is on the increase. Uh, so that's that's an interesting uh, sign for the market, and then also uh, the timing uh, of these expansions, how that is going to play in, uh, is also a key point to remember. Uh, probably longer term than people think on those capacity oh, yeah. expansions. Um, I want to go to the screen, John. Uh, really, the demi the demise of the majors, uh, the BHPs and the and the Rios, uh, really really just disinterested in the market. Can you speak to the situation in the junior market, smaller producers and hopefuls, um, that likely there's not too many suitors out there for a buyout? Can you kind of speak to the demise of the majors and how that uh, uh, filters down into the junior market and some of these hopefuls who would hope for a buyout but are maybe going to be forced to actually do something. Right. So when you when you look at the whole evolution of, of, of the nuclear electrification, uh, the market outside of the U.S., which the U.S. was driven by hundreds of small mine or at least 70, 80 small miners working into cooperatives and 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 the whole process this whole process fed the fed the domestic market on the on the world scene though uh canada was was uh, essentially uh with um with government it was only denison that 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 came in uh out of australia it was the um uh, rio or cra and government organisations. So the majors have been a, a main a main part of sort of the supply side and the investing side. And these are most have joined up or have been part government um, or or big big multinationals. And um, as as uh, things uh, consolidated through through various events. Um, Three Mile Chernobyl and all of this, the smaller groups, and then the majors even dominated even more. And the industry got used to these big, deep pockets, and companies could supply. They had a they, they had tier one projects, and there was some sort of surety. And and juniors uh, haven't really supplied that much into the uh, yeah. into the fuel cycle, apart from what Paladin, and that's where you got to understand Paladin's achievement and what it did. In the modern in the modern era, in this whole process, the uh, everybody got caught with their pants down a bit, particularly the majors and that pre-Fukushima period. And uh, and and what happened was um, they they started looking at their own requirements, and they became buyers of 
the uh, of uh, deposits that juniors had. And this became a, a great exiting strategy for for juniors. Um, there was no expertise; they could develop a a a, a deposit. It's very much like the uh, prospecting industry in Canada, where a lot of the juniors really work in this place of finding nothing, having nothing, finding a deposit and on selling it and have no desire ever to to develop it. So that was a good uh, uh, model and it was about four or five companies benefited from this. And now post Fukushima, the with with the junior with the with the senior, the majors are, are, are put, I mean, Rio is effectively out of the industry and and that's a big, big vacuum that people don't fully appreciate the loss. And they say, oh, yeah, well, in its place, then you've got the big German utilities. But they're nothing nothing like the, the Rio professional miners where they, they really know what they're doing, even though sometimes we have a bit of a laugh about their sort of institutionalization. Um, BHP, as, as um, uh, uh, Dustin said, they, they play in a peripheral market in the sense it's a, it's a byproduct. It's really a marker to decrease the price of copper and they get a bit of a you know a bit of an offset there. And and they're they're they they they're they're important because they will always be there as far as a long term producer. But it's not driving their their whole their whole uh, sort of uh, business model. What's happening now is the juniors really have to stand on their own two feet and there are no buyers. Uh, and and in that side, you can't see um, uh, a Cameco. They they they're caught up in their own uh, sort of mindset and what they're going to do, and they they're not looking out for any other sort of. They did a bit of a purchasing uh, uh, expansion into the Australia, and uh, and I think that's they've had enough of that, and they they will just consolidate around around what they have. Um, the um, Arano is is still uh, a wounded a wounded corporation. Uh, it's still to get its sort of full flying wings. They 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 are under scrutiny and uh, and and they they're not they're not in a very good position, I believe, in terms of what where once the the old uh, Arriva or now Arano were. Uh, Prom. They they huff and puff and blow and all of this and I don't believe they've got the capacity to come in and flood the market. Um, they've done they've done a, a great job in the in the sort of first decade. Uh, they're now playing in a in a in a listed company. Transparency, governance, all of those issues. They they really haven't reported on how much of a. Uh, a, a, a cash flow problem their businesses did really generate hence why yellow cake got that 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 uranium problem they sold that because they were short of cash so the big problem is is the 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 juniors now have to stand up and to be counted and and those ones that are and that therein is the the real the real issue uh, how how are they going to be who who who's who's going to be um, there's low, no very little expertise inborn in-house. Um, uh, they they'll try and make deals with uh, with utilities. They don't quite know what they're doing uh, corporately. Their marketing guy might know, but their buddy uh, corporate group haven't got a clue in that sense of a 
of a whole connectivity and to understand, look, I'm committing here, this is what I've got to deliver, can I? So I see um, the, this next phase will bring in another element of risk uh, that, will, that will need to be addressed. It isn't being addressed. Um, everybody just looks on, as I say, uh, and, and Dustin said a very good point. How you talk to your shareholders and how you talk to your, your to the utility business are two different things. And this, at the moment, those stories are mixed, and it's the same. It's the same uh, promotion pack that goes to the utilities, that goes to the shareholders, and that doesn't work. And uh, and so reality there has to bite. And, uh, and I think that in the next in the next sort of five years, there'll be a a, a really interesting uh, a, a fallout on all of this. Well, good, good points. Uh, Dustin, I, I want to move on to some other questions. Uh, tell us in detail about one of your best supply deals uh, closed during the last cycle. Tell us how it originated, what conversations took place, what were the price terms, and what was going on in the market at the time? How did you feel when you got that secured? Kind of walk us through this. And do you see that same type of deal happening for you in this cycle? Um, well, yeah, and John will probably get a chuckle out of this. After I looked across my 40 years, I actually chose the Paladin bankable contract portfolio for Langer Heinrich, um, you know, because that to me was uh, kind of the one, one of the shining uh, uh, success stories as part of the Paladin overall story. Uh, basically, when I was brought in by John, uh, you know, we were beginning to look at the uh, development of Langer Heinrich. And I just, John, you'll like this. I came across a presentation I gave to the board in May of 05, which kind of summarized the sales program. And, and what we did, meaning we, meaning basically me on the marketing side. But keep in mind, the marketers have to coordinate with the technical operational development side. When you go out and talk to the utilities, you've got to have a pretty good feel for how much and when and what kind of terms can be considered. Um, but what we did was, first of all, do a, an update um, on due diligence with the utilities. You know, I can remember a trip to Europe, a trip to Japan, and then a lot of uh, meetings in the U.S. in a pretty short period of time because the, we were working you know, to get those contracts in place uh, quite quickly. Um, so then that led to a, a list of high potential candidate utilities. In other words, based upon what the, the development side was saying and what the banks were saying that they needed uh, in, the, in the way of bankable contracts. Now, what does that mean? Those were a, a specific uh, commitment of, uh, of deliveries uh, at uh, certain price levels. So again, we were focused on base price contracts. These weren't, weren't market related. Um, and so we basically laid out, well, here is the, the high priority uh, targets in those regions. We basically dismissed Japan because their approach to procurement was you started slow, you did kind of starter contracts. They got comfortable with you. Uh, you know, yeah, you'll meet your deliveries. Well, we didn't have that luxury at that point. And actually, the Europeans, their coverage was such that it didn't fit well 
with that phase phase one uh, development of Langer. You know, the Germans were still at that time looking at the shutdowns and, you know, what are we going to do? And the French are, you know, well, we've, we're covered for the next 10 years. So it quickly kind of went down to the United States. And so basically we, as I said, focused on, I think it was no more than 10 and probably less than that uh, utilities. And I just went out and we sat down and I said, hey, you know, the market was, uh, you know, strengthening at that time. Um, the utilities were looking around, they wanted to diversify. They liked the Paladin story. You know, and, and as John points out, there's, he, he'd put together a, a, a company, as we call it, from soup to nuts, everything from exploration, you know, to administration, marketing, finance, you know, operations, uh, technical services, you know, in, in, in anticipation of moving the company forward. And so I was able to sit down and I can remember in some cases, I called a, a large U.S. utility and said, hey, we need you know, or, or how about based on the market and based upon what we were seeing out there, I think it was around $70. And they said, okay, I'll take that. I mean, I, again, I think they were concerned enough, as John said, that they were looking at, they never use the term shortage, but let's just say supply challenges. And they liked what they saw with Paladin. I mean, it was the, you had to present the whole story of here's where the mine is, here's what's happened in the past. When I went out there, I think John will remember, there was a one drill rig working on the, you know, the, the resource side. And, and so anyway, and then, so everything kind of came together very quickly um, on kind of the, the, let's say 80% of the base load. So there was, you know, I'm like, you know, it looks like we'll get there. But I don't, John, if you remember, we had a hole which was a couple of years and it was a couple hundred thousand pounds and I was having a hell of a time filling that hole. And we were actually at the BMO conference when I got the call from the utility and they said, yep, we'll take that. This was not the base load we'd already put together, but it was another group. And so for whatever reasons, the stars aligned uh, and, you know, we got everything put together to the satisfaction of the banks. And so the, the funds were there when we needed them. But uh, that's probably the, I guess, the best example of a new producer, you know, doing, in my mind, the marketing uh, correctly by saying, hey, we've got to get out there, talk to utilities, find out what they need, when it is, here's what we need, here's what the market's doing. And, you know, that all came together. and. There we were in a short period of time. This wasn't years. Uh, you know, this was done, I want to say, in under a year yeah. from start to finish. So, <clears throat> excuse right. me. So, so I would say that's probably the best example of what I consider solid term marketing, particularly for, for a new, you know, junior company, which quickly became much bigger than a junior. Right. Well, it had to be certainly exciting. Um, Pretty interesting stuff, and uh, couldn't imagine what it was like to get something like that secured and, and at those kind of uh, dollar values and volumes. John, I want to switch over to you. You're dedicated to this sector. Give us an idea how much time you spend on your company, your focus in this sector, and in, is the level of motivation and effort 
uh, really needed to stand out from the crowd to really be ahead of the game? So I'm in a really fortunate position because uh, the the uh, I, I can devote hundred percent of my time to, to to the work I love and um, and and essentially I'm, I'm I'm completely focused on not just on deep yellow but on the whole industry all its nuances uh, what those nuances mean in terms of opportunity how to read them in a different in a different way, which then allows for opportunity for the company, and 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 really try to analyse and dissect, and and not uh, and and not be sort of uh, uh, influenced that much by the general commentary uh, out there on uranium, which I would I would cause call in the overall uh, confused, confused in the sense that sixty percent have no opinion except to read and repeat what they've read. And so there's not an innate understanding of the industry and to sort of give some thought of, 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 of where, the, where the differences are, what the changes are, and, uh, <coughs> and what, uh, what then this uh, uh, could allow uh, for us in this, uh, in, this, uh, in, in this period of the company's development. I really loved the um, the old uh, sort of saying that um, uh, to be a good uh, tradesman, to be a good artisan, to be a good diver, to be a good pole jumper, you've got to do ten thousand hours of uh, of, uh, uh, of practice and training and thinking. And and so when I go to a boardroom and even go to my board, and and I'm presenting something I'm presenting it with hundreds and hundreds of hours of thinking about it and where my opponent has only thought about it for two hours or four or five or 50 and um, and so and it's not there as a competition but it's there to 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 look at what where are the real opportunities and then to give you the courage to spend shareholders money in that on that in that track, and still be flexible enough to 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 uh, change a little bit when 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 you need the and I look I I I find the industry diverse enough to give me variety in thinking and uh, I mean you've got to go from electricity which is which is absolutely the lifeblood of the world uh, and if you're not thinking about that. Uh, and, and, and one of the resources and how it fits with every community and every uh, and how then we as as the nuclear the nuclear side how our little bit fits in there and how all the others are and uh, and there's no sort of one one solution in here and and how you promote that to your to your customers stakeholders etc so I'm I'm more than happy devoting all this time to what I what I love. And what I enjoy, and, uh, and as I said twenty years ago, there's going there's two shortages the world should worry about: electricity and clean water. And yep. this is, and uh, and and they still remain so. Those two, those two, drive everything. And uh, right. uh, so, yep, that's my position. Dustin. How about you, Dustin? What what uh, speak to speak to the time that you spend uh, in this sector, just briefly? 
Um, well, you know, unlike John, John's full time with Deep Yellow, as he said, so it gives him kind of the luxury of, uh, of that focus. Uh, you know, I've got three different clients and it's about three days a week is what the, let's just say what I'm compensated for. But at the end of the day, it's every day. I mean, you know, as John said, um, some of us are, you know, uranium bugs. We've got it in our veins. We're like gold bugs. And it, to me, it is so interesting. Uh, you know, back when I started, it was all about the U.S., Western Europe, and, and Japan. Now it's China, India, Middle East. Uh, you know, the, the evolution of kind of that side of the, of the industry. And it's, uh, you know, and, and one thing I hadn't mentioned is uh, John brought me in on the financial uh, investor kind of relations side early on because he knew the investors uh, were going to be asking a lot of questions about the market. And so that's an area that I still participate in. It's not my, my main uh, expertise, but, you know, setting up the Yellow Cake IPO. You know, I think we had 60 investor meetings. And I really enjoy that. And, and just uh, as a side note for the WNA symposium, I was surprised, John, at the number of investor groups that are gonna be represented by far and away uh, the highest level that they're showing in this business. So anyway, and, and it's the fuel cycle. You know, for me, it's conversion, having worked at Converdine, you know, the role that that plays uh, a bit less on enrichment. But um, so anyway, yeah, every, every day, I mean, you know, do I spend 10 hours a day? Uh, probably six at least, because there's every day some news item on demand, on supply, on what the market's doing. And I just find it so interesting. And there's so few of us, you know, there's very few, I mean, as the industry uh, ages, and, and you know, as John said, that there's that, I guess, historical perspective where if you've lived through everything from, you know, $7 uranium to 135 and then, you know, what those cycles mean. And the other is competitive analysis, you know, as John kind of alluded to, he looks at all the other uh, uh, guys that want to develop mines and you just sit there and you go, well, here's what I think from an expertise standpoint, financing, location, and which ones are actually going to happen. And it's a really small list because right. again, one thing is, is the lack of uh, experience in the industry. I mean, the, the people are retiring, they're leaving, uh, you know, because they're 70, 80 years old, I guess. The last uplift, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was still quite a bit of expertise around that had come up in the, the 70s and 80s. And now that's all gone and that that's one thing that doesn't get really talked about much is you know when you want to develop a uranium mine you've got to have experienced people in that sector it's not you know it's not iron ore nickel whatever it's got its own set of risks and you know opportunities but if you haven't seen the seen them in the past it, it's hard to kind of get focused and get something done so but yeah so i mean right. i'm like john it's it's 100% of my time, even if I'm not compensated for it, so. <laughs> <laughs> right, now there's no doubt an industry-wide 
shortage of talent and expertise. There's no doubt about that. Well, we're about an hour and 13 minutes in here, guys. I want to keep going. Dustin, back to you. I want to talk about how you are positioning your personal portfolio for this uranium cycle. Can you give us some details on some stocks that you might own, how many you might own, and what your overall strategy is to the sector? Uh, my investment in the sector is pretty straightforward. Um, I was asked during the Yellow Cake Roadshow, you know, well, why do you work with the people you work with? And I said, well, I think they probably have some of the best opportunities uh, going forward because it was a bit of a broad brush. You know, I get I have uh, positions with with Bannerman, with Energy Fuels, uh, with Yellow Cake, and and I, I think as John knows, I still have a little holding in in Paladin from way back when. Um, so that's what I kind of focus on, you know. And the other thing, and uh, you know, not that it's overly relevant is uh, real estate in Colorado, because we've had such an explosion here, it's kind of hard to, you know, ignore that. So that's kind of, you know, positioning wise, I try to look at management, you know, opportunities of where these companies uh, will be going. And I think, you know, now as we enter this new phase, I'll probably step back a bit and say, okay, I'll broaden my participation. But, you know, what I look at is who, has got credibility in the business, you know, who's got that management and technical expertise. And, you know, there's always the role for the promoters. I've come to kind of, you know, accept that. But, you know, I, I'm, it really hinders my view sometimes of the industry because I go, well, they're never going to produce anything. So it's it, some of its business plan, business strategy. You know, as John says, a lot of these guys just want to, upsell their properties and i am you know that's going to be tough so right so that's kind of how i view the view the sector so okay well john i want to ask you uh how are you positioning your personal portfolio of stock holdings for this uranium cycle can you give us some details maybe on some stocks that you might own like deep yellow uh how many you own and, and maybe some of the stages you like exploration development uh, producer what's what's your overall strategy well, I, my my answer is very simple, really. Um, I, I adopt the old simple strategies. If I own a farm, I devote everything to my farm, nobody else's. And uh, I'm, I just hold shares in, in, in Deep Yellow. Um, that, that's all I am. I'm a, I'm a one-shot guy. I've got farming interests, and uh, and I don't look around for uh, any anything else uh, outside of that. Um, it worked for me the last time it'll work this time very well uh, John I want to come back to you uh, what do you think are the short term catalysts for Deep Yellow's stock to move higher given that the uranium price may take a while to move up well I think first of all it'll be the consolidation of, of the strategy that we've maintained and held to for the last two and a half years, and uh, and that is um, delivering on <coughs> what we said we would in Namibia, and uh, and that's a that's a real sleeper. And uh, this year, I'm anticipating we'll, we will really uh, we be touching on the economic um, sort of consequences of that uh, in uh, on in-house scoping studies, and uh, uh, 
putting a little bit more effort in uh, getting to our sort of 120 million uh, uh, target zone uh, in, in terms of resources in that area. So that's, and people will start seeing all of a sudden this illuminating as it's as it shows up on its economic sort of uh, parameters and as uh, we're, we're, uh, we set ourselves off and people have a little tick sheet. They'll say, gee, they've ticked that, they're ticking that. Oh God, they've ticked that as well. Now they're gonna tick this. This is really quite something when most, most uh, uranium companies are static um, in, in, that, in that sense. Uh, and I'm talking static, those ones that I, I believe we're closer to uh, being a developer than some people may think we are. And, uh, and, and I'm just sort of pacing it to the timetable I, I believe uh, we, we need. So I'm not looking at other people, what they're trying to say, and they're, they're going to develop at $40 and $45. Uh, we've got a, a, a price curve. Um, I'm not going to disadvantage my shareholders by, by uh, ego and saying I'm going to be the first. There's going to be a shortage out there. I believe it. And, uh, yeah. and uh, uh, you know, uh, people have invested in me uh, because of <coughs> The second one is on uh, the sector consolidation. And if we start hitting a few um, run, a few sort of scores on that side, people will say, oh, geez, they said they'd do that. Now they're, they're actually doing that as well. Um, and, and, the, um, and, and, and a first hint of that is uh, this um, really quite remarkable uh, share, uh, this capital raising I did uh, with, a, with a very, highly reputable deep pocket funds out of Australia who um, uh, with a raise that sort of 11 million dollars a couple of months ago no 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 hassle no big deal no uh, warrants options attached just looking there for the intrinsic value of what they believe the story of uh, sector consolidation and they're they're indicating uh, uh, I hope the shareholders that should something come up, they're willing to back me on that. So in a contrarian play, it's not actually the, only the idea that counts. It's having the financial support to carry out those ideas. And, uh, and, 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 and certainly um, this capital raising uh, has, has really, I think, uh, reflected fully on that. So I think the next 12 months will be one where our strategy, which I believe is aligned more more correctly, there's other strategies. I, I, I recognise that, but one where uh, we're still a way off from uranium moving to prices where I think uh, there is uh, fatigue out there. And uh, and and during this year, I've just made a note. Uh, Cameco, another mothballing, didn't work. Uh, Berkeley buggered. Um, ERA shutting down, Rossing sold to the Chinese, HUSAB continuing to have problems, Section 232, uh, you know, a distraction. Uh, uranium equities are being hammered um, and, and uranium price is sort of limited. Um, this, is the, this is in the end the, 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 the backdrop I'm working on and I believe what I'm doing in Paladin is exactly what should happen to value add and create value um, uh, through through this sort of um, getting a, uh, you know the company to where I think it should should be at this time uh, of, of the cycle. Right, and uh, yeah, I think that's interesting, and and, and certainly would would point uh, the audience to uh, 
to consider what's going on there and uh, your comments on the situation because they certainly aren't the mainstream views. And also I would point the audience to uh, the screen, uh, the strategy for investors. I, I think that these components are also important. Dustin, I wanna go back over to you. Uh, there are likely some companies and management teams in the audience that are listening. Why should they engage your services? Uh, well, without being big-nosed about it, and John knows what that means, um, as, I, as I pointed out with the Paladin portfolio on, on bankable contracts, uh, in my mind, these projects are not going to move forward uh, unless they have a strong portfolio of long-term, well-defined sales agreements. Now, I don't care who you approach for your financing, be it a sovereign wealth fund, be it export credit, uh, I know some people are looking at that. I think the, the, the sources of financing, funding, are always gonna say, hey, where are you gonna, you know, show me that the, the, the market, first of all, gives you credibility uh, and, and signs contracts with you, and, and I'm gonna get my money back or I'm gonna get a good return here. So I think that's, you know, there's not a lot of us left that have that kind of background. Now, some of the guys that are floating around out there, you know, came out of the big producers. And as John well knows, and as, as he just mentioned, they have a certain mindset. And, and it's usually give the customer whatever they want, just, you know, to get a contract. And, you know, um, that really doesn't work for the smaller producer. Because keep in mind, if you've got a project that's gonna come on and produce, let's pick, a million pounds, yeah, you're probably gonna have to have four or five contracts because the utilities aren't gonna sign up. And you don't, as a supplier, wanna have like one or two customers because they are all different. People kind of see them as, as a faceless blob and they're not. And that's part of the knowledge I think that uh, you need as a, as a new producer on just don't sign up with the first guy that you know you walks in the door. Um, so anyway, I think that's, you know, that's kind of what I bring to the party and, you know, kind of a decent understanding of the investment side. In other words, what are the investors looking for? So, you know, and, and that I think also comes into the mix on the marketing side. So it's branding the company, it's understanding the projects, uh, to some degree, the competition, you know, what they publish and what they think they're going to do. And, you know, I try not to throw too many rocks at the competition, but you go, hey, just take a look at the failures. They just never have made it. So that's why I'm kind of careful on, you know, who, uh, who I try to align myself with because people notice. I mean, I actually on a, let's, you know, go, go on a, a big nose comment. I've had a couple of fuel managers. They told me back in the, the mid uh, 20, uh, the 2000s, they said, you know, when you joined Paladin, because we know you so well, we started following the company. Because one of them said, I didn't think you would uh, align yourself with anybody that wasn't, you know, have some reality or, you know, a, a decent uh, pending reputation, I guess, as a producer. So I think that's all, you know, all part of it. And it's a historical perspective, I guess. One thing that just popped into my mind when I was at Portland General Electric, the resource planning guys looking at generation, this was 19, mid 70s, were looking at electric vehicles. 
And I thought, you know, you're kidding me. There, you know, there's no way. Well, lo and behold, that's happened. So anyway, I think that you know all of that put together, uh, uh, I think brings value. So, and the other okay. thing I think, and, and John may comment, a fairly straight shooter. I, I usually try to not tell people what they want to hear, but what I'm seeing, like in the market. So, right. Well, John, I want to switch back over to you and switching gears to another topic. What are your thoughts on the Alligator River uranium region? Can you describe any experience or knowledge gained from this area specifically? Well, the first discovery over there was a, uh, a, a, a deposit called Narbali, uh, which was discovered by Queensland mines, and um, the uh, and from from their ranger was discovered shortly after and Jabaluka and it was a fabulous uh, period of discovery. Then there was a lockout uh, uh, through land rights and the whole Arnhem land where East Alligator is, uh, was effectively uh, locked out to uh, any exploration. I was the first guy to negotiate access agreements into uh, that, those lands and uh, through the, uh, through the uh, a German company I worked for at the time, and we explored there heavily um, and, and spent a, a lot of money looking for ranger-type, unconformity-type deposits. And they were landmark agreements. So, I mean, this is this gives me, and I think about it, but when I'm involved in the company or in a group or my or paladin, I'm always the first, we're always doing the first old things. And... Um, and then even with with a group like uh, uh, the Uranus, the Germans in, in sort of eighty eighty three, uh, that that had happened. So when uh, when Uranus moved out uh, in ninety one, uh, these properties were sold out to uh, to the French because the French had failed in uh, in the Athabasca to the in the sense that they had no deposits they controlled themselves and they're all sort of co owned by with Cameco, so they decided they would come out here, spend huge amounts of money on those properties, and uh, and and of course didn't discover uh, anything. Uh, when they then pulled out, Cameco then who who had presence in Darwin bought them, and uh, or took them over, and then uh, they worked and they made some little discoveries, spending a huge amount of money. Those are the properties now that you're talking about that various companies are looking at because Cameco also pulled out and, uh, and they're sort of now uh, uh, putting, putting money on, on prospects and projects. Uh, the East Alligator is, is, has got you know, high prospectivity, but it's a very, very hard taskmaster area. It's highly expensive. And, and for me, probably not where I'd put money in at the moment at this, at this level of the cycle. Uh, you'd want, you know, to have high, high uranium dollars uh, to be able to justify because you've got to raise a lot of money to spend a lot of money to find something, and uh, that's where I leave it. Very well. Well, I appreciate your comments on that, John. Uh, John, I want to ask you uh, on another topic, uh, if you would share a little bit of details here, but uh, what is your total compensation package in terms of annual totals, and how does this reflect your capabilities as compared to perhaps others in the sector who perhaps get highly paid but don't perform sufficiently to justify the pay? 
I hate talking about money uh, in the, on myself, and all I'll say is that you know, people can go to the annual report and look at these 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 incredibly detailed remuneration uh, 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 sort of uh, reports, which nobody could understand very well, but in there that you can, can sort of filter out some information. I, I'm sort of paid about four hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, that stated in Australia, um, and uh, the and, and a twenty five percent bonus uh, if I if I perform, um, and that's about it. I have, there's no there's no sort of uh, uh, if I don't perform or you know I've, I've got a contract that I can be paid out on or anything like that, and I I just stand on my own performance. Um, the uh, yeah, and I I, I get uh, incentive uh, uh, shares um, uh, for which are loaded to the to the shareholders' favour, and um, and it's uh, yeah, that's that's where that's where it's it. And uh, by the way, uh, and that's about two hundred and eighty US dollars uh, where I get paid. But that's that's there. If they want detail, they can have a look in the. In the annual report of the company. Okay, and what about what about when you look across the industry? Uh, do you do you think that uh, some some are overcompensated? What's your thoughts on overall industry compensation? Is it really out of line given where we are in this cycle? Well, I, look, I it's really hard. I mean, it's you know, it's what people can negotiate with their boards and where they're at and. Uh, um, and what their own personal situations are at. There's a bit more pressure on uh, Australian uh, companies, Australian companies, they can't write into their contract if there's a takeover that they're paid any more than one year of their annual return. Whereas in the Canadian ones, they can say that they get they have to get taken out three or four times their, their, their return. So you've got this sort of cross-border type Differences and yet we're dealing, we're working in a global industry. Um, some, yeah, some are, uh, are sort of well paid, but it's also to do with 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 uh, input and uh, you know and what what you're achieving uh, during those years. You could say you know a lot of the companies have been static, uh, and uh, that, you know what they were four years ago to what they are now is essentially recognisable. Where I come from is uh, when I came into uh, Deep Yellow to what it now it is unrecognisable in terms of what the company is, what its situation is, uh, where, where it's growing to, and where I hope it's going to grow to. So, the, in in that way, uh, the the uh, when you look at performance, when you look at you know how 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 your your story gets uh, resonates with shareholders and particularly with uh, people that want to fund you, support you, and, and, and look at that, you become a real asset of the company. And uh, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's very hard to, for me to comment on myself about what I think I'm worth. Uh, naturally, I think I'm worth a lot more than what I'm being paid, but I'm, I'm quite comfortable and happy uh, uh, working with what I have. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, no, I think I think it's just worth highlighting that, uh, you know, mining the shareholders while praying for a recovery. That is certainly the case of many, many of these uh, in, in the sector. And uh, I appreciate your comments on that. Dustin, I want to come back over to you. 
Um, are there any other uranium supply de deal makers out there that have some notable experience with the art of the deal that you'd like to mention? Oh, you know, there are certainly a few, but as I alluded to earlier, uh, some of them come out of the big mining companies. Um, you know, uh, Clark Beyer, who is a, an old friend, colleague, we've worked together. You know, he spent, what, 15, 20 years now at Rio Tinto. So that they tend to have a certain mindset. And, and uh, you know, Jim Cornell came out of New Chem, and he does some work for uh, your energy. Uh, uh, Scott Hyman works at Vimy. You know, he came out of uh, Dominion and Cameco. Uh, not to say they can't get deals done, but they, they again, they kind of have a, a different mindset. Uh, I've always focused, let's see, I worked, I guess, for Rocky Mountain Energy, but I was pretty lowly sales rep back then. But after that, it's been smaller companies, be it, you know, Everest, Worldwide Minerals, obviously Paladin. You know, it's a pretty long list. And uh, I think that kind of puts your mindset in a whole different realm. And, and uh, I think that's a big plus. You know, some of these guys say, I'm never working for a, you know, a, a small miner, a junior. They're kind of like, you know, I, I was brought into New Mexico trading to deal with the producers because the traders all dealt with the utilities and they didn't want to, you know, soil themselves by working, you know, with either established producers or those that were trying to get into production. So I kind of had an open field and, and was able to get a hell of a lot done because I didn't have that competition. So I think that's, you know, yeah, there are people out there that it's, like I said, smaller and smaller group. And some of it's attitude. Some of them think that, uh, you know, you've got a thing here about optimism re regarding the industry. If I were to be accused of anything, which could happen, um, I'm always biased on the optimistic side. You know, not wildly out there with, you know, uh, the blue sky, but rather than the negative. And some of these guys are, uh, you know, price isn't going up for five years. It's just going to be a grind forever. Well, then why would you be in the business? That's oh. Well, why don't you go and, you know, sell shoes? So, right. you know, it's just kind of, I think part of it is experience and success. And, uh, and you're, you're kind of, where do you come from on how do you view the, view the future? Let's put it that way. Dustin, so you consult with a number of uh, sector information sources, such as the World Nuclear Association, uh, Yellow Cake, and others. Are there any notable changes of direction with these informational sources with regards to outlook? And with that, are you? Are your utility relationships starting to pay attention uh, to answering how they fill new contracts? Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting uh, you bring that up. Um, I've noticed, as I mentioned earlier, certainly uh, trade tech and UX are, uh, you know, trade tech has always been kind of on the more uh, optimistic side, meaning that there is a need for more supply. Uh, you know, UX has always been, let's call it more cautious, but I think they're changing their view a bit. And, and I think the industry is going to be uh, pleasantly surprised at the outcome of the WNA market report, which will be formally presented at the, uh, the uh, annual symposium. Uh, much more uh, optimistic on the need for investments in the fuel cycle. 
than, than has actually been the case over the last several of those reports. There's all kinds of limitations on the WNA market report. You can't talk economics. You know, there's uh, uh, competitive uh, concerns. But I think overall, it, it's a more positive uh, outlook for the, the supply sector, meaning it's got to it's got to have more investment, uh, you know, you name it. So yeah, I think that, and, and all of that helps. I mean, we can say, ah, you know, it's just another that, you know, who, who listens to them? Well, you know, a lot of the utilities in particular uh, default to the bigger consulting firms and their quarterly reports, and it does help form their view on the market. So, but yeah, and certainly investor, investment analysts have become uh, more optimistic, let's say over the last six, nine, 12 months. So all of that in my mind helps um, when one goes out to talk to uh, both the, uh, the investment community as well as the, uh, the utilities. So yeah, I think, you know, it's not a, you know, 180 degree change, but certainly the evolution is there, so. Thank you, Dustin. Um, John, for the audience in simple terms, how much uranium do you see Deep Yellow having at the Cornerstone Tumas project that is worthy of mining? And how long do you see that project taking to come online? Well, I, I say between 100 to 150 million pounds is what I'm aiming for. Uh, on a on a mineable, uh, you could say 80% of that. And uh, and I'm looking that uh, there will be no no serious development in this world uh, before uh, or to be production ready by 2023. And uh, or or whenever the price reaches those 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 values that I think they should reach. And uh, and I, I believe that uh, how we represent there we will have utilities coming to us to say, well, look, we trust what you're doing. By that time, I'll have a pipeline of projects as well and, uh, and we'll be a, a real safe haven for produce, uh, you know, for, for supply. Okay. Dustin, uh, back over to you. Uh, what is your view behind the scenes on the price indicators like the price of SWU conversion and UF6? I know you touched on this. Uh, with, you, with those prices moving higher, what do you see? What does that really tell you? Well, I think that uh, it's pretty obvious that it's uh, not demand driven. It, it's, as John says, the demand is reasonably well defined. It's uh, problems on the supply side. Now, you know, enrichment less so because they're still dealing with uh, pretty substantial overcapacity. But I think, you know, clearly in conversion, it, it's supply driven with the uh, shutdown of Metropolis. And I think we'll start to see that more on the uranium side. You know, I mean, we've had, you know, Gitzel said on the call that uh, with their cutbacks and with their buying, that's a 70 million pound swing in the market over 18 and 19. So, you know, all of us, at some point that starts to gain uh, significant traction. Let's put it that way. You know, it's just one of several events uh, or, or strategies that's being implemented. So, yeah, I think the indicators uh, uh, are all beginning to show that. So, 
Okay. And John, I want to talk to you about a little bit about uh, outside of Namibia. What other uranium jurisdictions would you look at? And can you share any details as to what Deep Yellow, what and when Deep Yellow will be looking at to add additional assets? Uh, no, I can't <coughs> in any detail. So um, where we're looking at is uh, Australia, uh, Canada a bit, and maybe if some things happen, maybe in the US, maybe, maybe. But they're the sort of three, four areas that, that uh, and, and, and Namibia, uh, for various reasons, which I won't go into here and uh, show and, and indicate that to my competitors. And, um, and we have a very clear strategy what we want to do, who we want to do with it. And, and, and those companies have approached us. We're not approaching them. Um, yeah, so they're the, that's, that's the pipeline will be around about well, like what I sort of developed in uh, 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 with, with Paladin. Okay. I want to talk a bit about uranium and when that is going to shine again, gentlemen. Um, Dustin, when do you see this market really moving? Do you anticipate a much different market this time and a much higher uranium price by 2022? Or should, pe should people really expect to wait longer? Um, again, I'm biased on the optimistic side, so uh, I think we will, what to me will happen is the term contracting, as it starts to pick up, keep in mind the utilities look a couple of years into the, the future, so that's the market they're going to see. And, and, you know, like I said, the, the utility that's in the market right now wants material in 2021. So, you know, they'll see that market in the responses. They should. Hopefully the suppliers are, are smart enough and maybe that's, you know, a little too uh, optimistic. Uh, and so I think, you know, we could see the price, as John said, next year in that 30 to 40 range. Would, wouldn't surprise me. Um, you know, we could see a pretty good pop up into the, the low 30s fairly quickly. And then we could see a bit of a plateau, um, which is really more healthy. I mean, the whole idea when the price ran to 135, then it came off and, you know, that, it, that creates all kinds of problems. So I think if we have a decent rational uplift, but it's got to get clearly a lot higher than it is right now. And, and as it, it, if it lingers, to 2022, I think as John pointed out, you're gonna see more of the potential suppliers drop off the vine. They're not gonna be able to, to make it from here to there. So it actually then makes the, the future beyond that even brighter for those that are able to make it. So, you know, I think we'll start to see that, that uplift um, fairly soon. I mean, I'll, would, I would think next year we'll start to see, you know, a spot price into the 30s, so. Okay, and John, what are your thoughts? Uh, 2022, or should people expect to wait longer? No, I, I think they'll, they'll, they'll see uh, the, the truth that by that, by that 2022, they'll, they'll be able to see uh, uh, the, uh, some factors coming in to justify why they've stayed with their investments. I mean, I'm looking at uh, even this year, you know, uh, I reckon two, two juniors have popped off the market. They're out uh, for all love or money. And, 
I think next year, if this will sustain, as I say, the, 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 the sort of twilight zone of the low 30s to high 30s is not going to achieve anything for anybody. And it's more damage will be done in that, in that environment than anything else for, for reasons I won't go into here. And, um, uh, but in that one, you know, the utilities will remain still sort of semi-complacent. Um, but uh, when, uh, when it comes uh, to unravel this whole thing, and when the you know significant amount of investment is called for, and yep. uh, and unpacking uh, uh, all those capexes and opexes and lining them up against uranium prices and how that happens and who and with whom, this is a huge huge task, and um, uh, which is all going to be uh, governed by boards that haven't done it before, and uh, and people that haven't haven't sort of made it before in the in these areas. So. The, the prices for me will be sustained only because the very strong filters on sustainable production and investment that will happen so that the, the, uh, the, the big increase in production won't, won't sort of happen because those natural constraints and whacking, uh, lack of expertise is another one. Um, so I, don't, I see it as a, as a sort of a, a move, but I do, I do think that there will be this interim period, whatever it is, that's not going to satisfy anybody, least of all the big producers, where it's not going to give them a clear line to be here nor there. And, uh, and with the utilities still hoping that this nonsensical low uranium prices, uh, where they think they're giving a lot at $45, and it's absolutely not, not, there's no value, there's no production going to come in of significance at that level uh, from anyone. Thank you, John. Dustin, is there any opinion on when some of these physical funds will look to monetize their holdings? Can you share with us at what prices they will see the need to do something and in what forms of both spot sales and potentially long-term contracting? Also- They can't do, I'll spot. tell you something. I, I've got to break in here, uh, Andrew. These uh, 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 warehouses will not enter into long-term contracts. They can't. You have to have a sustainable, uh, source of uranium that comes in to feed your the the term agreement. So all they can do is make their business, and they'll make high profits, but only on the amount of uranium they hold. They have got a life outside of that. Only the only the producers can give term contracts uh, um, in the uh, and to give term contracts on a, on on eight eight million pounds uh, is nothing. You know, Dustin. this is the, yep. this is, yeah, and now Dustin could cut in, but I've got to say this. Okay, well, well let me comment. As I, as I said earlier, trying to figure out when these individual funds, for example, let's say outside of Yellow Cake and UPC, which I, they're not going to, you know, at, at this point or in the foreseeable future, I don't think either of them will be looking to lay off any of that inventory. That's not the, not the business model. But you know, the, the financial buyers, um, you know, like we saw last time, we had, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs and, uh, you know, Deutsche and a bunch of people come in. And then we had the GFC. And so it was an external event that happened, which then forced them to deleverage. So, you know, in the absence of that, um, 
you, you say, well, it'll be based upon each individual uh, fund to say, hey, I've, I've made my 25% in a year. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get out now. Uh, to me, you can't model that. But like John said, if we're not talking a big volume here and it won't hit all at once, you know, because that was, you know, kind of the concern Cameco put forth as well. What are these guys going to do? You know, it'll dribble in here and there, you know, and in a 50, 60 million pound spot market, I don't think, you know, four or five million pounds is going to drive anything. And yeah, I think, you know, the, the utilities will look at these guys uh, and say, hey, you don't have a long term source. So I, I'm not really, you know, for the next year or two, sure. You know, we know materials out there and, you know, but other than that, you know, the, the term market is not going to be uh, where these guys play at all. Now, not to say that some of them don't stick around and try to do the two, three-year deals and, you know, uh, but other than that, I, I just don't see that that happening, so. Okay, and that's, that's good comments, John, from you and also Dustin. Uh, just one more uh, follow-up on that. Uh, if the uranium price stays where it is and mobile inventory continues to draw down and there's not really any spot market for purchases of any size, uh, Dustin, uh, to you, and then I'll get John's comments, uh, will these funds or traders potentially look at lending material to some of the folks who have to fulfill contracts? Uh, could, having been involved in the loan business when I was at Noexco, it really tends to be uh, more grief than it's worth because one thing is like getting, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the security for those loans. And if the market's moving rapidly, you have to keep changing it and all that. You know, for some reason, they were going to get a big interest rate or whatever. They might look at it. But no, I don't, you know, the lending thing has never been a big part of the market and I normally when the market's under stress you probably see less of it it's just like on inventory acquisition you know the the European and US utilities have been working down their inventories and people have said oh if the price goes up you know they they may sell more to make a windfall profit they also say that for the the uh, Chinese what happens is the price strengthens they start buying more they're, they're worried about future availability. So it actually goes the other direction. So, you know, people really start to see your, the, the uranium that you're holding as more dear in economic terms and, and they hang on to it. So I, I don't see the loans playing a role. Okay, and John, do you have any further comments on, on these funds and, and this, uh, this lending? Yeah, yeah, I agree with, uh, with Dustin. I think that, First of all, the one you loan it to has to pay it back to you in kind because they'll yeah. want it in kind. And there's and if there's a shortage, nobody's going to bloody well you know shoot themselves in the foot uh, uh, loaning something. Um, the only ones that'll loan is uh, uh, an overeager junior that can't deliver on his contract, and then he gets somebody else. But this, as as Dustin says, this is grief that very few people get out of, and. Um, uh, uh, because it's all based on, you know, you can't hedge this stuff. 
and uh, there may there may be a little bit of business on that side, but not not that much, and not sales affect the business of of, of supply and demand. Okay, and John, I want to ask you another question here. Uh, you just raised some capital over at Deep Yellow that you made mention of uh, to bring in another substantial investor. Would you be willing to share with us uh, some of the plans for that capital? Yes, uh, that's been announced clearly in the in the material that we uh, 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 released on the ASX, which was uh, to accelerate um, uh, the uh, uh, Namibian the reptile project, and also to um, uh, to facilitate our sector consolidation more in the sense of making the selections and uh, and the and, and to confirming those selections and uh, to indicate to the people that we that we uh, uh, have approached us that we are able to raise funds while very few others in the uranium equity can raise anything above uh, a million and a half or a million okay and uh any any other comments there? Uh, is there can you can you point to? Is this going to be part of uh, the potential review and and uh, consolidation uh, for certain assets, or is this going to be kind of more focused on Tumas? No, 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 no. The the this is the first time that uh, the the uh, the strategy of developing the company's uh, pipeline and and other assets uh, come into uh, full focus. Okay. Yep. And Dustin, uh, highlight for us, if you will, for the audience, the reach of depth that you really have with industry participants, which increases your ability for deal flow. Can you give us some details on the amount of relations you have with utilities, maybe just a count or, or uh, some more details on those participants also in the fuel cycle services side? Uh, well, yeah, it's kind of an opening comment. Um, the uh, Relationship building has changed a lot since I started. Back in the, the late 70s through the 80s into the early 90s, um, you know, there was a lot of communication uh, with the, like the utilities. Now, some more than others, of course, but as uh, fuel groups have uh, been reduced, uh, there's, there's less of that. Like I said, some of the utilities are complaining that people don't come to see them much at all. So I really uh, use normally the conferences because there's several each year and, and that's where I see the utilities more than just, you know, you don't pick the phone up and call, you know, the fuel manager and have a, an hour discussion, which, it, you know, back in the old days, you were able to do that. And, uh, you know, I, I keep in touch with uh, the converters because, you know, Converdine is here in Colorado and, you know, I know the, uh, certainly the Cameco people well, um, but it's more of that. It, it's, you know, the, the following what's going on with them on the internet. And then if you have a question, you get in touch with them. But, you know, as, as we know with the internet, there's so much information available. In the old days, you had to carry an extra suitcase for annual reports and, you know, all of that uh, that you'd get from a ex, well, Commonwealth Edison back then, or a Southern or Duke or whatever, but uh, but yeah, they're just the, the availability is, is not what it used to be. So you know you you make sure you're on the supplier list. For example, you know I got the latest request from the U.S. utility that entered the market, uh, that kind of thing. So 
uh, you know, it, it's just knowing who, I mean, some of the fuel managers now I, you know, develop relationships with when they first entered as junior engineers in some of the fuel groups. So I, it's more, you know, that rather than long chats on the phone about what, what they're up to, but it's, it's, you know, seeing them at conferences and they're used to having that 20, 30 minute meeting. You know, here's what we need. Here's what we're doing. They're always interested in what, you know, my observations are in the market. And uh, I think that's kind of how the relationships, uh, you know, pretty much stay in place. Now, if there's a new person that's come in, like at Southern, they've just replaced a fuel manager. Uh, you know, at the Miami conference, I spent, you know, an hour with him on the boat trip in the bay, that kind of thing. So, you know, it, it's more of that now than, you know, that, that you know, bi-weekly phone call, so. Well, thank you, Dustin. I appreciate the information there. Dustin, are there any final thoughts on this market that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, I guess, again, being biased on the optimistic side, I'm, I'm hoping that we're now uh, coming out of the Fukushima period, let's put it that way, and, and you know, which was aided and abetted by the 232 process, which, again, working with energy fuels, I understand why uh, they and your energy did what they did. Uh, but now I think we're, you know, the, the, the price indicators, the uh, market analysts, everybody are recognizing that, you know, we're coming into a new, a new phase, a new cycle. And, and again, I think, uh, you know, if, if not later this year, certainly 2020 could be a very a big eye opener uh, when it comes to uh, contracting and procurement. So, so yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm I always like to use the term cautiously optimistic, but I'm now even more almost solidly optimistic. So. Okay, and John, uh, what are your what are your thoughts? Any final parting uh, ideas and views, thoughts on this market for the audience? If you listen to me when I first uh, joined in two and a half years ago, and what I said then, what I said, and I could, and I would actually recommend that people take a, an hour and a half and listen uh, uh, to the to the uh, summit talk before, and what I'm saying then, what I'm saying now, it's consistent. I'm no different to this way or that way. I'm just saying that the Iranian price will be a bit longer than what it will. Everybody is saying, oh, well, it'll be now the next six months. It'll be, uh, as I say, the big, the big, big dynamo will be when the utilities recognize there's a fundamental problem in the supply demand. They are innately not capable or expert enough to understand the supply side nor are the, uh, the, uh, those uh, news organisations that pretend to know a lot and, uh, and, and start shuffling around changing their stories. And the, there, is no, there is no change in the... Um, when I joined, I said two to three years before the Iranian price, and I'm going to align my strategies to that because of this nonsense of, uh, you know, these one-shot answers, Cameco's mothballing, oh, everybody expects the price to increase, so their expectations of the value of their own project, section 232, oh, yes, these are just decoys, and I need a flat period, and this is, looks like what's happening up ahead. Is there going to be a long, hard row of, of prices aren't going to change that much, 
goodness me, they've had every chance in the world to move, and uh, and it's a it's a flat line, and and now I see the opportunity uh, where I have uh, funds and access to funds that uh, I can get some realistic uh, uh, discussion with some of these CEOs uh, in terms of where the real value does go in an M and A and what can be done to increase value for both parties. So that's that's where I'm at. Well, John, I appreciate the, the final comments there and, and really appreciate you handling uh, those questions. Uh, I think you have some, some really solid points uh, to bring up there. And, and Dustin, uh, appreciate your comments on your final comments there. To our audience, uh, thank you for spending the time with us. Uh, we appreciate the question contributions from Cyril O, uh, Peter S, Angel O, Jared W, uh, Paul M, Mike P, James W, Matt P, and Todd A. If you're not, uh, if you are not aware of, uh, if you're not a, a member at Smith Weekly and have joined us for the first time on this event, please make sure you check us out on our website, smithweekly.com, and also via Twitter, at Smith Weekly. Please reach out with any questions and feedback. If you've determined that we've delivered some value to you uh, today, uh, we appreciate donations to support our research. The link for those donations is on the screen. Well, gentlemen, uh, let's leave it there. This was a high quality discussion and thank you for taking the time to share your insights and wisdom with us. I want to wish both of you well as we get into the next stages of this uh, and really the, the real main course of this uranium cycle. On uh, behalf of our guests and Smith Weekly, thank you for joining us and take care.